0: This is 20 by 20, a podcast from Newcastle University's School of Architecture, Planning and Landscape, where we ask leading architects, urbanists, designers and thinkers to reflect on the ideas, inspirations and interests that shape their practice and their views on the present and future of architecture and cities. It's 20 questions in 20 minutes with me, Owen Hopkins. Can you tell us who you are, where you're speaking from, and what you do? I'm Neil McLaughlin. I'm speaking from a little room overlooking my back garden in London, and I'm a general practice architect. I read a... Really fascinating piece you did for the Architecture Review last summer, written, I guess, at the height of the first lockdown, where you describe your working process and, in particular, the role of drawing in it. There was a, a quote I just want to read out. It said, most of the time I work with my team in a very collaborative setup where everyone is taking turns with the pen and working away on sketching paper. Uh, you describe a sketch is the materialisation of an emerging idea which once created opens up other possible ideas. I just love that notion and how you describe it. Can I wondered, nearly a year on from that article, how you and your team adapted to this new way of working? Will you go back to how you worked before once in-person working is allowed? And what has changed, if anything, permanently?
1: I think that at the beginning of the pandemic, There was a sense of urgency and emergency and the possibilities of rising to the situation. And people were looking to say that new modes of working and practice and living might come out of it. I think in truth, most of us feel that that kind of turned into something of a long trudge and that we weren't really shifting into a completely new paradigm where we would become disembodied minds interacting over the digital ether. And I think there's a kind of a a hunger and a yearning most people have just to be out with folk. I I, I should be able to generalize and say something interesting about the whole of society, but but honestly, I can't. It's produced in my life, um, at least in my working life, a kind of flatness. It feels as though there's a slightly more two-dimensional character to our interactions. I suppose one of the key things is that working over Zoom, and I I call it the hamster wheel, um, I tend to come in and sit down in my office at about 8.30, and I get up at about 9 p.m. It's just just over a 12-hour day on the hamster wheel, and you're just going from one Zoom call to the next, I mean, a lot of them are very enjoyable sessions because I'm actually still sitting designing with my team. It's just we're doing it over a digital medium and we sketch and draw together and it's still chaotic. I suppose the difference is that every one of them is kind of an appointment. It's different from the studio where you look around the room and you can almost tell from the atmosphere or the body language of people where where a conversation might be needed, or you can leave one conversation for five minutes and come back to it. And so you're moving around in a much more intuitively understood medium. And to some extent working on Zoom has been a bit like walking around in a huge kind of clumpy pair of boots where you have to sort of put your foot down each time and think about it. And it lacks the kind of fluency of working together, physically present to each other in a studio. And so I would hope, we're having a conversation in our office yesterday about coming back to work policy for the next couple of months and will people still be working from home. And I suppose I articulated it in saying that, of course, if people feel they can work more effectively from home for an afternoon or for a period of time, why shouldn't they? But fundamentally our practice is about, I hope will still be about being in each other's company. The issue that you quoted about the sketch The idea that by creating a material artifact out of a thought, you then produce a kind of lever that, that, that the material artifact itself becomes a thing in the world that allows you to have new thoughts. I'm interested in that both at the level of architects drawing together or architects drawing in order to make progress with their thinking and being conscious and critical of the medium which you're working in. But I'm kind of equally aware of it as a thing in broader architectural culture and in architectural history. And Ian Hodder, who's an anthropologist and an archaeologist, has a wonderful book about entanglement, where he sees the development of settled life, organized religion, developed human culture as being a process of which he, what which he calls entanglement, which is an increasing materialization of social constructs and social concepts. And so as soon as you materialize a social concept in a thing, then the thing exists in the world and it can, it can generate a certain kind of agency be, 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 because it's there and people are living with it. And he describes human progress almost as a process of increasing materialization of what had been intuited social constructs. And the more they're materialized, it's almost like a kind of a physical slowing down that produces settlement and architecture and everything else but obviously it increases the capacity for society to develop in all sorts of ways merely by materializing these these things which hadn't otherwise had had, had had a physical identity so i'm quite interested in that in that broad idea not just in terms of the design process
0: i wanted to go back to a project from a little while ago now the housing you did in stratford one of the most striking aspects of that project was the way you incorporated reproductions of the Parthenon frieze into the facade. And what, what what I wanted to ask, really, was kind of, I guess, looking back in a sense, is what did you hope at the time people would would make of that? Would they see it into? In, would they immediately associate it with the Olympics? Which I know you didn't really want. You wanted it to be a kind of deeper sort of meditation onto onto architecture and the origins of architecture but it kind of raises interesting questions about authorship intention meaning and reception which are always stretched in in architecture but i i wondered is there a strand in your work that is about reacquainting people the user the city dweller, with these with these kinds of ideas and and maybe architecture as a kind of shared or or common thing
1: Yeah, I mean, at the heart of your question, there's a little bit of an an issue about the way that the architect's intentions would be expressed explicitly in the architecture. And um, I'm always slightly concerned about an architect who's got a kind of a rich and complex narrative that they want to somehow embody in the building and communicate as if by telegraph to the public. And I'm constantly telling my students that you can't stand outside the front corner of your building and tell people what it's meant to mean. And so I do sometimes write about my work. In fact, I'm doing it a little bit less these days because i I'm so, I've become slightly suspicious of the medium of writing about your work in that way and making explicit the ideas that, 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 that drove it, because eventually you're putting a thing in the world and it, it, it operates without your interpretation as a complex artifact in the world. Having said that, I mean, there are two aspects of that project. To some extent, it's a little bit of a throw and it's, it has a kind of a slightly kind of polemical edge to it because it was addressing the strangeness of the commission in that, you know, for reasons that you can understand, the whole of the Olympic Village was developed through kind of private capital um, as a kind of you know, a, a developer-led project. And you know, very large um, multinational developers were brought in to construct the Olympic Village. At the same time, the, the Olympic Committee wanted it to sort of represent, in some aspirational way, the best of British architecture, the best of young British talent. It was kind of the kind of the aspiration, and so that was resolved by clamping the two ideas together and I, I always called that project the three-legged race because it had that feeling that you had cultural aspiration on one hand and private capital driven by their own standards on the other hand kind of hobbling along trying to create a synthesis and I thought that was really interesting and in a sense quite typical of something about modern society where development is handed over, the agency for development is handed over to private capital, and then values are kind of clamped on by legislation or or prescription. And so it seemed to me that there was something quite deep about the way we make our world and make our cities that that was brought to a point of real vividness by that process. And of course, you ended up with a project where the core form of the building, what the developers call the chassis, would be designed by Three or four big architectural practices for all the buildings. And then lots of cheerful practices like ours would come along, wagging our tails, and add a facade to to that within the remit, within the limits of the core form that had been established by another architect. Then the master plan and the landscaping was done by somebody else and i was kind of fascinated by that because you have that whole thing that corbusier had about taylorism at the beginning of the 20th century his obsession with taylorism and he kind of assumed that the architect would be the kind of controlling mind behind the taylorized process bringing all of these other particles and entities into a synthesis but of course, if you can tailorize all of these other people, you can tailorise architects as well. <laughs> and, you know, you end up with a building then where the project manager becomes the, the overseer and all of these architects plug in their little bit of expertise. And I just thought it was kind of interesting. I was much more exercised by the kind of abstract and de nature of the way in which that project came about. I didn't really mean to make a reference to the Olympics per se. I mean, clearly the emblems that are put on the outside of the building don't relate to the Olympics. They're part of the Panathenaic procession, which is from the Acropolis. And it's not it's not, it's not the Olympic festival. The general allusion to Greek culture and the, the, the Olympics coming to London and the fact that Parthenon stones are still in London was, of course, on my mind. But I was more interested in the idea of a kind of an urban sonography and a certain history there has been in London of aggrandizing Fairly standard developer-led housing with these allusions to a kind of Greek idea. I mean, the whole of Nash's work in Regent's Park is full of these extraordinary Code Stone casts that are that are that are sort of pasted onto the outside of the building. And so, I'm interested in the relationship between the kind of hard driver of developer-led housing and this requirement for the housing also to create a kind of a public urban sonography that alludes to public narratives in some way. And my feeling about it is that it produces a kind of aporia or a kind of a crisis of interpretation that you can't really resolve.
0: And then I guess switching to a very different project and a very different setting, the Bishop Edward King Chapel, where you weren't dealing with developers and the interests of private capital and a very prescribed brief or kind of or sort of zone of of operation that was that was offered to you by the the architects at the the sort of top of the chain Could you talk a little bit about about that project because i you know i again looking into what you've written you're talking about the starting point was the the word knave in a Seamus Heaney poem and you talk about how the building captures and embodies some of the characteristics of the site, the brow of a hill, the beech tree. I'm interested in how you go from that to developing form, structures, spaces, manifested in materials and light.
1: I mean, first of all, it's interesting of you to have raised the Athletes Housing and Bishop Edward King Chapel as two questions side by side, because they're almost kind of equal and opposite projects. The thing about a chapel is that that, 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 that as soon as you're asked to do it, every, every mark you make draws up a hundred examples of other things that can be interpretively connected to, to what you've drawn. And you're working for a small community who, from their own means, are creating a building for their own purposes. It's almost the opposite to that abstracted, deracinated character that I associate with social modernism, which produces things like the Olympic Village. T.J. Clark talks about modernism as being the disenchantment of the world. And and a a church, obviously, in in the deepest sense, still belongs to that enchanted world in which community, a connection to the past, ancestry, publicly constituted meaning that's universally understood. All of those things, um, none of the kind of issues of interpretation and meaning that you get with modernism um, can be attached as easily to something like a church. And so we were able to immerse ourselves in that. Um, It's possible to go to the site, to stand under the trees, to have a a sense of the kind of light you want to bring into the building, to listen to the client speaking and talking about how they want the community to constitute themselves in that place, to begin making sketches of that, a, a definable community of people making something from their own means on a site that has an ancient sacred tradition and you're placing something into that. And as soon as you start to draw, the lines that you draw connect you to a kind of deep history of other architectural interpretations of the same situation. And so you're able to kind of mine that and connect back into that and feel that your building is one further stitch in a long tapestry. And it's interesting that many people have looked at that building and said, "Oh." He's imitating such and such there, or that's that's taken from such and such, as though that's a criticism. It's entirely the point. <laughs> that's what that building is. It is a, a carry a borrowing forward of lots and lots of forms from previous generations of architects, um, and you feel like you're 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 continuing a conversation. You know, for example, one aspect of that is that there was a fantastic church designed by Rudolf Schwartz in Frankfurt in the nineteen sixties, St. Michael's. And it's got this elliptical form with a clear story window at the top and then these kind of clearly expressed precast concrete columns on the outside of the building and it's an extraordinary thing to take the columns of a church and to put them on the outside of a building like that but in a sense that comes from his negative theology but it seems clear to me that when Peter Zumter went to build the Saint Benedict Chapel um, in Switzerland he was looking at Schwartz's church and reinterpreting it and saying OK, well, you've made that move and that move, so I'll make those moves, but then I'll make this move. And he moves the conversation forward. And so you see them as being one being an essay on the other. And then, of course, in, in Eliot's terms, the latest one also changes the previous one by being made. And we felt that we were consciously making a co- continuity of that tradition. And in a sense, that's the pleasure of doing a building like that, that you're engaged in a conversation with history. And when I allude to Eliot, I'm talking about his essay on the individual talent, where he talks about the relationship of an artist to history, and says that everything that you make doesn't just extend the history, but it also changes everything that's been made before it in the light of the thing that you've made. And I suppose that was the world we were working in for the chapel.
0: I wanted also to ask about your work for Oxford and Cambridge Colleges. You've got a, a number of projects, Jesus College, Cambridge, Baleel, Oxford, Magdalen, Cambridge, St Cross, Oxford, Somerville, Oxford. Um, I may have missed one or two. I'm sorry. Because I think that, I guess, picks up on many of the things that you've been describing. How do you approach those very particular settings of kind of continuity, but also a kind of continual reinvention? And I suppose it comes back to that idea you just mentioned of that the new insertion somehow changes the meaning of what's there already in some form or other. But also, why do you think that you've, you've ended up getting so much work in those settings?
1: The, the first thing I'd like to reassure you is that it's almost a complete accident.
0: I thought, it, I thought you'd say that, yeah.
1: <laughs> I, I've got I mean, I had no connection with any of these colleges or the university. Maybe 18 years ago, we did a competitive interview for a little refurbishment of a sure start and underneath the flight path in Hounslow on a rainy Tuesday night, and we didn't win it. And I came home feeling pretty glum about it, but not winning that competitive interview by and by gave me a connection to somebody who put me on a shortlist for a college. And then we did one, and then we did many. It was it was one of the, if you're a young practitioner, there's hope out there. <laughs> Keep going to those funny, un- unpromising interviews on rainy Tuesday evenings. It, it was just as simple as that. But obviously you, you, you've made a point, which is that there's something about the way that we work that must satisfy a need that those clients have. And It's kind of hard for me maybe to articulate exactly what it is. My interpretation of architecture is importantly bound into concepts of continuity in time. I'm I'm not saying that I'm a conservative designer per se. I'm probably saying something bigger, which is I think that in in many ways, architecture is a conservative discipline. It's got to do with establishing continuity in time. And it's got to do with an understanding of what I would call temporal depth. For a very long time, we didn't have buildings at all as as a species. We started to create buildings under particular kind of social pressures, and they were doing something for us that's more than the practical things that we think buildings do. And I would say that the key thing that buildings were doing is establishing temporal depth. In other words, the sense that communities sustain themselves longer than one lifespan. And one of the key vocations of architecture is to subliminally, constantly tell us that the society that we're in has cycles that are longer than our own lives and our own interests, And and that's an important part of the kind of, the the part of architecture we've almost entirely internalized. And there are very few things in the world that tells us how old things are uh, better than architecture. So an understanding of the city that sees it as something which is in a state of continual development from the depth of time, and that it's social, political aesthetic identity is something which has emerged through a series of processes over time. It's something that I'm naturally engaged with and I'm naturally interested in, and I don't have to be pushed to try and think about the world in that way. And so it probably helps me when I'm talking to people who feel um, a degree of curatorship over building stock that has come from centuries before them and will last for centuries after them. That natural sense of continuity, which is part of my my core way of thinking about the world, Mm -hmm. Is probably something that they intuitively connect with. And I'm, per- perhaps that's why they come back to me and ask me to, to work with them.
0: The final set of questions or question brings it up to the northeast and to Auckland Castle and the visitor centre. That you've created there and also the faith museum that I think is is not yet complete or, or will be um very shortly could you talk a little bit about those those projects the the visitor center is in, in in some ways a departure from some of the things that you've done previously but i think in all the things you've said up to this point there is there's a continuity and, and a connection with with your previous work and i'm you know sort of interested in in it as something that is unexpected but also familiar as well and there's a sort of almost whimsical side to it but it's also underpinned by some you know very serious ideas and thinking
1: i think one of the things about the visitor center is it might seem surprising if you look at my built projects but actually there are a lot of projects that are like that that just haven't been built and even that one wasn't didn't end up being built entirely as i would have wished it Because it belongs to a set of projects that I would call kind of instruments, or the idea of a kind of a playful apparatus that we've done a whole number of over time. And many of them nearly got built, many of them were never going to be built, but it just seems to me to be my impossible project that I don't get more of those built. And it's a kind of an idea of architecture that I really want to play with. The one that you might know that you could say was quite like it was the building we built in Hull in about 2005, the Ark building in Hull, which is also a kind of a playful apparatus. And it's meant to be like a kind of Heath Robinson device, that it's kind of, it's, it's almost like a fairground machine or something. And I felt that when, when we went to the castle, there was some part of my instinct about that building that was quite childlike in a way, which is I was thinking that for the castle as a visitor experience. It's quite a kind of low-key castle and it's got some beautiful buildings in it and some wonderful art to look at. But if I was 12, I don't know what I'd be getting off on 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 a day trip there. And my inner 12-year-old thought, couldn't I provide something for the castle that would just be a bit more like you'd expect to find if you went to a castle? I thought it would be great to climb a tower. And I had that simple thing, uh, almost a childhood memory of, you know, going somewhere and climbing up and seeing the view and looking down and seeing your mum and dad back down on the pavement, that kind of sense of the day out. We actually started off with a stone tower, but historic England were not going to let us have a stone tower. And in a way, the allusion to sort of medieval um, timber architecture was a dialogue with historic England that happened over a year where we were trying to persuade them to have a tower. They felt that a stone tower became too much part of the castle. And so we used the historic reference to the lady Duke's fantastic book on medieval siege fortification to show them drawings of siege engines. And to say that a siege engine is more like the people of the town climbing up and looking into the castle than the people of the castle climbing up and looking down on the town. And that somehow changed the dynamic. But what was interesting about that was that it wasn't a kind of um, somber historic reference that was then sort of we plodded through. It was once again a kind of a throw in the middle of a debate or a dialogue about what we could do that somehow became the project in the moment. You know, let's try this. Oh, it works, let's, let's keep going then. And then it played into this idea. You know, we used references of old uh, mining uh, winches and siege engines and so on to create this kind of timber framework. And we thought that it did have a provisional quality, that it, that it might be there and then it might just be gone a hundred years. And so it didn't have to be quite so kind of serious and it allowed you room to play. And then it goes back to Semper's festival scaffold that's bedecked with emblems for the, for the, for the event. We wanted it to carry you know beautiful images and so on on the ceilings and on the panels, that it would be more like a kind of a little book of ours and that it would have that kind of playful quality to it. So it's like a little kind of performing apparatus uh, in the way that we had conceived it. I hope that they put the images onto the shutters and complete that aspect of the building because
0: I think it's, a, it's an important part of the concept of the architecture. I usually finish by asking kind of what's what's next, what's coming up, but I kind of just want to kind of praise you that with, well, are those the kinds of projects you'd like to do more of then?
1: At the beginning, you asked me what I was, and I said a general practice architect. In a way, that's quite important to me. It's like a GP, you know. You say to me, what, what, what's the next patient you would like to walk into your surgery? I, was, I mean, what's, what's, who's the next person who's going to, who I'm going to pick up the phone to who's going to ask me to design a building? And I think that I, I have much more that sense about it, that if you're a general practitioner, then you're doing the buildings that people come to you with, and you're not really curating your own output in that way. So I'm not I'm not an architect who dreams of, you know, doing loads of work internationally or building an opera house or doing more of this kind of thing or that. It's more a sense of having a studio, building a culture of people around you that really enjoy working in the way that we work. And that's, you know, the team that work with us in in the, in the office, the consultants and builders that we work with. And then being there and being kind of available for the next time the phone rings and you hope that someone's going to ring up and ask you to do something that you couldn't have thought of and I think particularly for students one of the things to say about an architect's life is it's just amazing that you get dropped into other people's worlds and you have to completely discover a world that you'd never thought about you know whether it's the theological ideas of Anglican nuns or a guy we're working with who's a scientist who's dealing with the life cycle of flies, or working with people with dementia, or dealing with religious organisations whose ideas you knew nothing about before you met them. And it's a fantastic thing about being an architect
0: that you get the chance to explore all of these worlds. That's a perfect way to end. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to 20 by 20, a podcast from Newcastle University's School of Architecture, Planning and Landscape. Stay tuned for more episodes, write a review or give us a rating and be sure to follow us on your preferred podcast platform.